Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present... And welcome to Positive Talk, everybody. We've got a ha- we've got a great uh, conversation that we're going to have today with you. Mike was on the show. I uh, was on KKNW with me uh, a week or so ago, and it was such a fun conversation. And we talked about so many things that it's fun to have him back because he is a mental performance coach who helps kids, pre- predominantly teenagers, that are making that transition from being a kid to now facing college or or getting drafted or how to set themselves up for life. And sometimes it takes more than a mom or a dad to figure it out. And so you got to have somebody like Mike, who's a coach that can kind of help mom and dad figure it out and and to tell them when they need to be quiet and, <laughs> and need to let the kid do what the kid needs to do and that kind of thing. So, so Mike, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here again. Kevin, that was well said. Thank you so much for having me back. I tell you, Michael V. Huber, which is H-U-B-E-R.com. Go go there. You'll find out all kinds of information about him. He has does podcasts. He's he's out there doing everything, just trying to trying to do everything like I do. And, <laughs> you know, but uh I so you know, you are working with kids and prior to us getting on here today, we wanted to, we were talking about what, what do we want to talk about? How do we want to frame it? And I grew up in the seventies when I was a football player in high school, I graduated in 75. And so back then any notoriety you ever got might be in the local newspaper not even the the like in seattle it was the seattle post intelligence or in the times might not be in those but it might be like the site journal or one of the secondary magazines that that featured local sports but nowadays it's everywhere and kids how do how has it changed because i know you grew up in the 80s you youngster you um but how has it changed from 40, 50 years ago till now. Yeah. I think there's a lot of really big changes that have happened. So there's, I think there's a couple that I'll point to. One is what has been termed the professionalization of youth sport. Meaning when we were growing up, we'd go play little league and we'd get, you know, a t-shirt and a foam trucker hat and you bring your glove and you go play a game on Saturday and you practice once a week. And that was it. Well, now kids are playing baseball all year round. They're playing multiple teams um, or they're playing different sports all year round. Um, They're traveling. They're getting these like, you know, uniforms that are hundreds and hundreds of dollars and bats and gloves and all this stuff, shoes that are super expensive, right? So like we're accelerating the process for these kids where they're being thrust into this world where there's more money being spent. There's more eyeballs on them. They're spending more time and energy at even 12, 11, 12, 13 years old in their sport. And it becomes more like a job than it is recreation or fun. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is more for the high school age kids and and certainly college is social media. Like we talked a little bit about the idea that there's so many eyeballs on these young people, even as they're in their preteens, their social media accounts that these teams are setting up teams are marketing or clubs are marketing themselves based on performance. We win these championships. We send these kids to these schools. Right. And so there's this culture of 
winning and elite performance at a very young age, which there's definitely some good in it, but then there's also some things that accelerate childhood for kids and make it more stressful, more anxiety inducing can even cause kids to um, age out or, or, or burn out and, and withdraw from sport earlier because it's so pressure packed. And they lose the sense of joy of having the fun of just going and playing the game. I remember when it was just the, the fun of just playing the game. Nobody was necessarily there. There wasn't any any um, um, agents there or any of that kind of stuff like there is today. And everybody's got a phone. So everything that, that happens on the field ends up in somebody's phone, more or less. Yeah. And, and, and from my own experience, what I'll say is, you know, my parents were blue collar people, not super educated, like sports were secondary, right? My parents didn't care about my sport performance necessarily. They cared about putting food on the table and paying the mortgage and paying the bills. Now we live in a world where people are in general, more well-to-do. There are multiple income families, many people, most people, you know, statistically go to college, graduate college right? They're doing much better. And now they're sort of parents are, are not only they're turning their kids over to the system, like, you know, and I have kids and I do it too. So I'm, I'm not absolved from this. You know, you send your kids to sports and they're sort of, they're so busy all year round because not only because you want them to be active involved, but because it's easier from a logistical standpoint, sometimes to have your kids busy than have them at home when you're working or whatever. Right. So, so the parents are now putting their kids into sports all year round and they're investing big money because there's a, a keep up with the Joneses mentality, or I want my kid to get a scholarship, or I want them to just have the best. And like, I didn't have that. And when I look back on my own experiences as, as a, as an athlete, I loved sports. I played three sports in high school. I captained two varsity teams. I mean, baseball is my first love of all time. And I put so much pressure on myself as a baseball player and, and as an athlete in general, and my parents didn't put any pressure on me. And I still was like, get sick to my stomach at times over baseball. Imagine if my parents were actually putting pressure on me or they're at every game and, and sort of just like lording over me, I would have, I would have, I would have, I would have snapped. Right. And so that's kind of what's happening now with a lot of kids. And that's ultimately where I come in, in terms of the work that I do. How do you work with a kid who is celebrated in his field of expertise, baseball player, or, or maybe he's a great pitcher or whatever. How do you keep his head on the ground when he's getting social media and all these other outlets that are saying, oh, he's great, he's wonderful, he's going to be the next Sandy Koufax. If you don't know who Sandy Koufax is, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> or Todd Drysdale or, any of the, or Jim Palmer or any of those guys. How do you keep their head on, on from exploding? Well, I think it's... One, it's easier said than done, right? Because by the time I start to work with a lot of athletes, they are in the teenage years. They're 16, 17, 18. Sometimes they even come to me when they start college. At that point, they've already developed thought patterns, ways of thinking, ways of coping. They have a worldview. And so, you know, if that's their worldview of like, hey, I have, I'm externally motivated, meaning I'm motivated by rewards and recognition and other people noticing me. That's not the easiest thing to sort of undo, but the work that I do is really steeped in self-awareness, focusing on what you can and can't control, right? 
and really starting to sort of infuse these concepts of, hey, you can buy into all of those things that are outside of you, but you don't control them. And when you buy into something you can't control and you don't get the response that you want, it's going to create a lot of negative feelings, anxiety, stress, right? So finding ways to A, put things into perspective, right? To get things into perspective to say, hey, this is just a game. Sure, I love my sport. Yes, I want to be good at it, but it's not the end of the world if I have one bad game or one bad day or even a bad week, right? And then give them the tools ultimately once they've built their self-awareness, give them strategies to use in those moments on their own when I'm not there so that they say, okay, I know this is what's going on. I know I'm having negative thoughts. I know I'm feeling like crap. I'm beating myself up. I'm struggling. This is what I can do now to get myself back into the present moment, which is something I'll talk a lot about is being present rather than being distracted by something that's going to happen in the future or being distracted by something that's going to ha that's happened in the past. How do you keep now? Baseball was your sport. It was my sport too. And I, I was a catcher for a long time. And when I was playing and I wasn't thinking about it, I did much better than when I was worrying about it and thinking about it. How do you keep a kid from thinking to himself, Oh, I'm going to strike out here. The bases are loaded and I got a good picture of he's I'm going to look foolish. He's going to strike me out. How do you keep the mental side of the game from overtaking a kid like that? I mean, that's a great question. And it's probably like the quintessential, it's like a microcosm of my work, right? Because one, the brain is predisposed to protect us from threat, right? And those situations for most people, like when you're in a pressure situation and I'm facing somebody who I perceive to be better than me or really good, or I've got runners on base and it's a close game. Those are threatening situations a lot of times for people because they're going, I don't want to screw up. And that natural inclination to say, don't screw up, don't screw up, makes it even harder to perform in a natural way, right? Doing that thing physically that your body's done so many times before and you're fighting against yourself, your mind is getting in the way of what your body can do. So it's like sort of recognizing that that's sort of the baseline for most people. Um, then it's a matter of I, with a lot of athletes, particularly those teens and college age kids, it's really getting them to focus on the process. Again, what they can control. Um, sometimes it's a distraction, right? Like what I mean by that is, is if I'm having a negative thought about myself and my ability to perform in that moment or feeling, you know, feeling overwhelmed, like I could either distract myself with something that's like neutral or outside of myself, or I could even distract myself with a phrase or a, or a saying that's completely like um, nonsensical, just as a way to turn your brain off. Like I've done that with other kids. Like they get so wrapped up. I'm like, say something funny to yourself. It's like the old adage, like when you're, when you're, when you're giving a presentation in a, in, in class, you know, imagine your, your classmates unclothed and everybody laughs and they sort of loosen up. I don't do that, but it's like, Hey, you know, think of a word or, or a phrase or something funny to take your mind off of what you're about to do so that your body can just go do it. But it, it takes a lot of work and time because you're undoing patterns that have been, you know, accumulated over time. And biologically that's the default setting of, of the, the biochemistry of the brain. Now, this is for the those of you that are not um, sports aficionados like like I am, which is you see a guy coming up to bat. He does the same routine 
every time he'll take this glove and he'll he'll tighten it and then he'll take this glove and he'll tighten it and he'll take his hat and he'll move it and then he'll take it and take takes the same as even to the point of 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 wiping the dirt a couple of times as he's getting into the batter's box why do they do that is that just um habit or is that is there a method behind it well i i think in general a routine of any kind is really really helpful right and sticking to a routine if it works for you is great i think the challenge with some of the routines like even like the kind of routine you're describing is is the the balance or the the break point between a routine and a superstition right superstitions are like i have to do this or else versus i have a routine because i want to feel comfortable that i'm doing the same thing automatically every time one that routine can be a distraction but it can be a source of comfort now there are certain things that i like to build into routines that i think are more helpful than just tightening your batting gloves or wiping you know, you know, wiping the dirt with your, with your cleats or tapping your bat on the mound, it might incorporate deep breathing, putting in a deep breath to relax your muscles, to slow your heart down, to clear your mind. That's always something that I, I encourage. Sometimes it might be saying something to yourself that resets you or sets you for what's about to come or picking a point of focus. If you're a batter or your pitcher, picking a point of focus outside of you and then going to that point of focus. Right. So there's things that you can do that are more strategic than just some of the sort of the rituals that you see players do, but that's important too, because if you're doing something different every single time, now you're worried about like what my routine is going to be. And that just puts more like noise into the system that you don't need when you're trying to hit a ball moving at, you know, 90 miles an hour. Which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do. It's one it of the toughest not. things to do that there is. Um, what <laughs> just for thinking now, there are like pitchers that they, as they come off the the mound after an inning, they will not step on the uh, the line. Um, and but what happens if somebody and it's a superstition that they won't step on the line? What happens if they accidentally do? Are they are they now trashing themselves? Um. I, I think I think the answer is it depends, right? So like when I played baseball, I would jump over the line too. But if, if I stepped on the line by accident because I wasn't paying attention, like it, it wasn't something that would have set me into a tailspin. It was just something I did, you know? It was like a fun thing to do, jump over the line. You know, it was kind of like a, you know, a little bit of a game. Um, but I think there are players in sports out there who are so superstitious that if, if they don't wear a certain item of clothing or they don't, you know, do a certain thing or they don't jump over the line that could spiral them out of control. And that would be an example of somebody that I would want to work with to say, Hey, like you're putting too much stock into this because the reality is, is that you stepping on the line or not wearing a t-shirt has nothing to do with your ability to perform, right? It's really just something that you've convinced yourself is real. Um, and, and it's, it's only making it harder for you rather than making it easier. So I, I think I'd even step back to say, like, in terms of the work that I do, it really is, I try to make it as personal and customized as I can, because every person is different. They come from a different place. They have different experiences. They have different ways of thinking. They may even have, you know, mental health issues that are beyond sport. Uh, they may have family issues, like all these things impact the way people look at the world. And I have to understand that so that when I'm helping them solve their problems or giving them strategies, 
like I'm taking that into account because not everything is going to resonate with everybody that I work with. How, what's a percentage of high school baseball players who make it to the major leagues and have a major league career? Do you know what the percentage is? I don't know the odds, but the number is ridiculously small. I could probably do the math for you, but it would be boring for you and everybody else. But <laughs> I mean, you know, now in the, in the major leagues, put it this way, they have 20 rounds of draft. They cut it in half. So there's basically 600 players, 700 players drafted any given year out of that includes high school and college players. So that's tens of thousands of baseball players who are draft eligible, high school seniors and college players, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, and the vast majority don't get drafted. Right. So the idea that you're going to play professional baseball, I think is, I think everybody needs to have a dream, but your effort and your energy and what you do needs to be aligned with that dream. Right. And that's sort of the, that's the contradiction with what I was saying to you before about the professionalization of sport is that in some ways, the kids who want to be professional athletes, they do have to start at 12, 13, 14 years old, putting in that intense effort and skill building because it's so competitive. Now that's a catch 22, but I think what most people tell me now, like any athlete tells me, I just want to go as far as I can go. Meaning I want to play till I know I can't play anymore. And if I do that, I'm good rather than if I don't make the pros, it's a failure. Right. So I think people are realistic about it. I think it's more focused on college than pros. I think a lot of kids want to be college athletes, particularly division one scholarship athletes. Like that's sort of the gold standard of, Hey, I made it. I, all this work was worth it. Now I get the recognition that people see me as a division one athlete. Right. And I think that's the, the carrot. And it also saves their parents a bucket load of money. Yeah. And let's talk about that because what I do find is, listen, there are very, very few parents, if any, who hang that over a kid's head and they say, hey, I need you to get a scholarship. Right. Or I'm spending all this money and investing all this money in your development as a player athlete. Like you need to get a scholarship or else. That rarely happens. I'm sure it does, but I don't see it, right? What I rather I see, what rather what I see is, hey, we're spending the money. We want the kid to be happy. We want to give them the best chance to succeed. But if they don't play in college or they don't, you know, get drafted or they only play Division three, whatever, it's okay. But the kids internalize it anyway. They see mom and dad are driving for hours. Now they're getting on planes. They're spending thousands of do dollars for league fees and equipment and all these things. The kids know, they don't know the exact numbers, but they know mom and dad are really knocking themselves out to give them everything they want. So there is a sense a lot of times, I think implicitly by the, from the kid that, hey, I don't want to let mom and dad down. And so there, thus it becomes a cycle of like, there's expectation, disappointment. If they're not communicating, then there's like, you know, a, a, you know, a misinterpretation of who wants what. And that even puts stress into the system. And that's just like, that's just family dynamics 101. Forget about sports. We all go through it. Oh, exactly. And, you know, the other thing that um, that I'm hearing about now that has been going on for the last couple, three years, especially in, in college athletics, there's been a change that, that now they can have an agent um, when they're I, 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 it's in football specifically, I'm thinking. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that they can they can actually sign as an as a college athlete, sign promotional deals 
with companies and that sort of thing that that and have an agent and and stuff like that is that true and how is that affecting um the schools so it's i'm not an expert in it but i i do i'm i'm around it enough or i'm familiar enough where i could give you the basics so yes that is true so where it used to be that you couldn't make money monetize your name image and likeness they call it nil you couldn't monetize that as an athlete because that would violate your eligibility as an amateur now it's allowed so you you can go and sign a deal with a local car dealership where you promote you know you show up on instagram and you promote the dealership or you promote a more likely a lot of times it's like a food product a dr energy drink or whatever i mean there's any range of things and they can go and they can get an agent as it relates specifically to that, right? Not necessarily an agent to, you know, assess their professional, um, you know, opportunities in sport, but more a marketing agent. So, yeah. So that's happening at the college level. So, listen, I mean, every the, the, the upshot of it is, is that by and large, college kids have more money, right? Which not necessarily a bad thing. We could debate that. I don't really want to. I have an opinion, but it's not really for me to say, you know, in this forum, but, um, I, th I think having money in their pocket is, is sort of the difference. Uh, and, and what, what's happening is, is a lot of kids are staying in school longer because they can make money in college now and they don't have to go into the draft early or they don't have to worry about money so they can enjoy their college experience. The other thing that comes with it is, is the transfer portal. I'm no, are you familiar with the transfer portal? That was my next question. So when you couple those two together, what's happening is, is that kids are moving around from college to college to college. If they're not happy in a situation as a freshman, they're entering the transfer portal and then they're basically shopping themselves to reopen their recruitment so they can go to a school where they could play more, presumably, or maybe have even more NIL opportunities, more monetize, you know, more opportunities to monetize their likeness. Right. And so what's happening is, is that kids are moving around and they're staying in college longer, too, for that reason. And so. Colleges are recruiting kids out of the transfer portal because they're experienced at the college level. So if I'm a co college coach, I say, well, I can go get this sophomore or junior player or even a senior who wants to transfer because he's been playing for two or three years, which means the high school kid doesn't get as many opportunities because they'd rather recruit the kid who's been in college rather than the unknown entity. And what's happening there is that it's creating a lot of anxiety for high school kids who are offered scholarships, right? They're committed to a school and the school's offered a scholarship verbally, but they haven't signed their letter of intent yet. And what's happening, or at least there's a fear of it from the high school player is they're going to pull my scholarship and give it to a transfer portal kid and because they're more experienced, I'm going to get a better kid from an existing college pool than a high school kid. And so the kids are worried, like, I have to continue to perform because I'm not guaranteed anything as a high school player until I sign on the dotted line, which is like, you know, not until your senior year. Well, you know, what's, what happened last year with the uh, with the Huskies is that they had a guy that was a really high touted high school athlete from the local area. Yeah, I won't use his name, but uh, um, so he signed with the Huskies as a freshman. And they also signed another guy as a freshman who won the job 
And so that meant that he was not, he was going to be behind that guy for the next four years or as long as that guy stayed. So he ended up opting out and transferring someplace else that he thought that maybe he could play and, and, and make a little bit more money. Does that happen a lot too? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that definitely, I think that if I had to guess, because I don't know for sure, cause you know, you don't know what any is in, what is in anybody's head and I don't know that there's any data, but if I have to guess, right, like the vast majority of kids who are going into the transfer portal, it's because of playing time. Right. And so you could argue, I think you could argue it both ways, right? Like, okay. I thought I was going to come in. I was maybe promised and listen, this happens in recruiting. You're promised things. You're going to come in and play right away. You're a really big part of the program. And then you come in and you're not starting and you're sort of relegated because you kind of starting from scratch and you maybe feel like you're, you know, um, sold a bill of goods. And, and, you know, if you want to leave under, you know, under that premise, like, Hey, listen, I believe that you should have the freedom to do that. But I think it's a slippery slope where you come in and you're beat out by somebody who's maybe a lower level recruit, but they beat you out on the field in competition, right? Are you leaving the school because you got beat out or do you, should you stay and continue to compete to try to win that job or maybe move a switch your position or whatever. Right. And so I think there's a, a fine line between, Hey, I'm going into the portal because I'm out playing and there's a really good reason versus like, Hey, I just don't want to fight for this, this job. And I'm going to, I'm going to bail cause it's easier to do that than stay and fight again. You know, I, I don't begrudge anybody anything, but I think those are the, the two sides of the argument. Well, and I will tell you that that comes back to roost uh, when you are going up to for the draft. They look at that kind of in, information on were you willing to stick through it and to compete or did you quit to go someplace else? That matters to, to the pros. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's from a from a character standpoint that could be looked at as somebody who's not willing to sort of hold firm in their commitments to stay and, and compete and stick it out and try to develop as a player. Because, you know, listen, there's four or five years in college development happens. Kids come in as unheralded recruits and they develop into starters and they develop into professional players because they stay the course and they're focusing on what they can control, which is their development in the weight room, their development on the field. So like, that's the kind of kid that a lot of teams will, look for. I think the other thing that I, I would like to talk about as it relates to that is one of the things I talk to my clients a lot about is why are you picking a particular college? And I think there's such a singular focus on prestige. Like I'm going to UW, I'm wearing the purple, we're tricked out, we're on TV, right? All those things, blah, 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 blah. But you're not thinking about a lot of kids aren't thinking about academics. They're not thinking about the distance from home. They're not thinking about, you know, am I going to be comfortable living on a big campus like that in a city or would I be more comfortable at a smaller campus, right? In a rural area or whatever it is, right? There's so many factors other than just the amount of a scholarship or the prestige of a program that would drive, that should drive decision-making because if you choose a school, say you dub because you love being in a city and you love Seattle and it has your major and all these things, maybe if you're not a starter right away, you stick it out because there's other reasons to be there. If football or whatever your sport is, is the only reason to be at a school, you're probably much more likely to transfer out when things don't go the way you want them to on the field. Now, that is something I would imagine that in your work and your coaching and when you're talking to these kids, that has to come up 
in in what you're doing and what you're talking to them about because it is um, an overall program and i i really think that and i i'd like your opinion on this i really think that the education is they get a free education but that's the key if they can get out of college even if they don't get drafted and they've got an education that's going to serve them well for their entire life whereas if they just go and 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 sky and and skate by uh so is that something that you have a nice heart-to-heart talk and and I, your point is well taken about should you go to michigan as an example uh which has got this heralded program and the best of the brightest and the best football players go there or should you go to i don't know east michigan which is a little bit smaller you've got a better chance to play and it might have your major and and you can and it's a smaller school uh, if you're a small kid, do you, do you go through and have that discussion with these kids? I have, I have with certain kids. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them, when they come to me are already committed to their school. They've already chosen where they want to go. And we wouldn't necessarily revisit that or try to like, you know, you know, reinvent the wheel. You know, we just, we'd move on in terms of focusing on, on what they're trying to accomplish. But I have had kids who are, are uncommitted or hadn't started the recruiting process yet who are talking about, schools randomly like i want to go here because again it's a big name you know i'd like to be there you know whatever it's all hearsay and they're not really researching it so yeah like my my advice to them is think about what your values are like what's important to you i think it's an exercise that i actually try to go through a lot with athletes is not even as it relates to college selection but in general like what's important to you in your life like everything like let's prioritize like what are you about? Like, what is most important? And if, you know, sports are the most important thing and everything else is down here, well, that's going to drive your decision-making and that's fine. But just be aware that if things don't go the way you want the to in sports and everything else is down here, you're probably going to feel pretty crappy about yourself, right? So really trying to get a sense of what's important, how do we balance it a little better, um, and really thinking through like, you know, logically and, and rationally about like, what's the best fit for me? I mean, you never can guarantee anything, right? We all make choices with the information we have. And sometimes those choices don't go the way we want them to, even though we've done our homework and that's okay. Right. It's like, but at least give yourself the chance to prepare and think through it rather than just being like, yeah, I'm going to go there. Cause they're the first one that offered me, or I'm going to go there. Cause I love their uniforms. I mean, those are extreme examples, but it's, it happens. I, I'll bet it does. I'll bet it does. What is it like? Because, you know, it's been a while, but I did have a couple of boys that were 18 at one time and they were not fully developed yet. They were emotionally uh, immature and they were not men. Uh, how do you, how do you work with an 18 year old who is just in my world, barely out of diapers and is making these lifelong decisions of, of, of degrees and what they're going to do and, and being in sports and all of that. How do you, how can you help somebody who is immature? It's a really great question. And it's a really hard one to answer because you're right. I think by and large, especially males from a, an emotional standpoint are not, they're not near fully developed, right? And they are sometimes, um, they're, they're reactionary. Um, they're not thinking straight. They're willing to take risks or make decisions on a whim because that's, that's just where they are developmentally. Um, for me, 
like, listen, I, to boil it down, I would say usually it's the kids who are in general more emotionally mature and more motivated that tend to do better when they're working with me. The ones who are less, and it takes a lo- sometimes it takes a little bit of time for me to figure that out, you know, like two or three or four coaching sessions to be like, hey, maybe you're not ready for this or you're not into this or you kind of want to do things your own way. And that's fine. Like, I get it. Like, it's not for everybody, but it's like up to me to assess, like, does this person have the motivation to invest and engage in a process like one that I'm doing um, and stick with it and really get the most out of it? Because otherwise, then it's a waste of everybody's time and money. It's also on me a bit to meet them where they're at, which means like if they are a little bit more emotionally immature, but they want to get better and they're invested, then I have to figure out ways to connect with them, right? That's my job to understand them, to have empathy, to connect with where they're at and be like, okay, like what can we do that this kid's going to understand that makes sense to him so that he could implement it and get better. It's really hard, but it's rewarding. You know, if, if you could stick with it and make it work. By the way, we're talking with Mike Harbor or Huber, excuse me. <laughs> if, you, if you go, I can't read. Um, if you go to uh, Michael V huber.com you can find out more information about him i would suspect that there's somebody that's listening to us who's a parent and is saying especially if single mom if if dad's not around or or passed away or something they need the they need the support of a man of a male who can reach their kid differently than they can because mom can't never reach a, a 18 year old child the way that you might be able to. So do you find that when people talk to you about coming and coaching two things, number one, do you find that when they ask for you to come work with them, that they're willing to give you the tools that you need to help their kid? Number one. And number two, if you have to, if you go to work for somebody, do you and the parents or parent have a long conversation before you begin with a kid? Um, so I'll, I'll answer the questions in reverse. Yes. So not only do I talk to them before I usually get to the kid, I have a long conversation about what their perception of the situation is and what the kid needs. I'm ideally I'm talking to them on a regular basis. We don't necessarily have set meetings, but I'll do check-ins with them. Hey, this is where, you know, Johnny or Mary's at. I'll send an email or a text, right? Or they'll be like, Hey, I'm having some issues. I'm seeing some things that are odd. Can we talk? And we'll get on a phone call, you know, when they need, right? Because I think what happens with young people to tie it back to the original question about maturity, emotional maturity, I think sometimes the kids tell me one thing through their eyes. It's not a lie. That's what they perceive and see of themselves. And mom and dad see something completely different. And I don't know it because I don't hear it. So like I'm getting only one side of the story. The other side of the story is, no, that's not happening. Like I'm seeing something totally different. So my job in in our sports psychology language, we call that triangulation, which is basically taking information from different sources and trying to fit them together to figure out what's the whole picture. What's the true story, right? There's, you know, your version of truth, my version of the truth and somewhere in between. That's kind of what it is. And my job is to figure out what that is. So I'm constantly, and it depends on the, on the, on the parent. Uh, Some parents are really hands-on. Some people are uh, really hands-off. That's okay uh, to an extent. But to your question, most of the parents who come to me, whether it's a single parent, divorced parents, 
married parents, it really doesn't matter. What I would say is most parents who come to me are really motivated to get their kid help because they're recognizing that, hey, like this has become so complicated and complex between us and for my child that I can't help them anymore. Or I can't help them in the way that somebody like you can because we've kind of hit, you know, a dead end. And that means when they come to me, they're kind of coming hat in hand with some humility saying like, I want you to help me. They're not fighting back or they're not, they're saying, Hey, I'm giving you the, the permission to go help my kid because I just want them to be happy and okay. I got to ask you because it's, it's changing uh, ever always. It's always changing, but now there are uh, principalities like Washington, like uh, Colorado, like California that allow that pot is not illegal anymore. So do you sense that kids are in getting more involved with recreational drugs, even if they've got, even if they're an athlete, because I know, you know, athletes have had their tests done and they've been, had substance abuse and that kind of stuff. Do you, do you talk to them about that? Is that, is that even an issue for the kids? Well, so it's a, I think it's a really hard question to answer. I think one, because by and large, my experiences are, I don't have kids who, you know, engage in that behavior. At least I don't know. Like, it's not like the kid will tell me the parents don't, I've never had really a parent come to me and say, Oh, they're, they're caught up in this and it's really affecting their play. Even, even alcohol. Like I, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't come as an issue to me. doesn't mean it's not there, but parents don't haven't like, historically haven't come to me and said, Oh, my kid's drinking or they're doing drugs or whatever. So it's really hard for me to say, I mean, I know it's out there. I just don't know if it's because the athletes really are hyper-focused on performance that they're not doing it right. Because it's so competitive and it's so high pressure. They don't want to um, ruin their ability to perform and get those scholarships and ultimately go pro uh, or it's because it's something that's just swept under the rug and we don't talk about it. So I, I honest, the honest answer is I'm not sure. <laughs> like dad how old are your kids uh they're going on 15 and 13 so teenagers ah well you got a few years to go because my my youngest when uh he was going through high school and then i found out in his early 20s we were sitting down in a bar having a beer because he's of age and stuff he told me some stories about stuff that he did when he was in high school that i never knew about so if well, I, th I think, but I think that's an important point, you know, and, and not necessarily as it relates to doing, you know, recreational drugs in high school or before drinking underage, but I think in general of this idea that we have to let our children, and, and I'm, I subscribe to this theory as a parent, but just in general, like they have to make their own choices. They have to be equipped to make their own choices and they have to be equipped to make mistakes and fall on their face. Right. And so I think what happens in the sporting athletic environment is parents are so hands-on and they're so, they want to be so involved, whether it's living vicariously through their kid, being over-involved and whether it's in the stands or just like being hyper um, intense about them always doing their thing. They're not giving the, the kid the chance to make their own choices. Do I even want to play? Right. I feel pressured into playing or I want to take a day off, but I can't or I don't want to play this summer. I just want to be with my friends or whatever it is. Right. Rather than letting the kids make those choices and understanding that it's OK, but there's going to be a consequence 
from a performance perspective if you don't do this rather than forcing them to do it and saying you have to do this or else. And then it becomes this activity that becomes involuntary and it affects motivation. It leads to burnout, right? So parents like just letting their kids make their own choices to an extent, right? You don't want them to be unsafe, but if they're not in danger, letting them make their own choices and you having as a parent having to live with the consequences just like they do. And, and, you know, that's a part of life is, sure is. You, make, you make your choices and you sit down and then you got to deal with the choices that you made. Exactly. Exactly. And it gives, it gives them a sense of agency, especially in those teenage years where they're exerting their independence. They want to, they want to make their own choices. They don't want to have to look to you for everything and giving them the opportunity to make those choices, even if it's just sort of ones that are not high risk, but saying, Hey, okay, if you don't want to play on this team or this summer, or you don't want to work out. That's okay, but, and I do this with my own kids, just understand there's a consequence. There's a consequence to what you eat. There's a consequence to when you go to bed. There's a consequence to when you practice, all those things. And if you don't do that or you do what you want to do, that's fine. But then when you come on Sunday and say, I didn't play great, I felt sluggish or like I was really tired or whatever, like that's on you. It's not on me. I'm not going to force you to do it. But now you know, you just learned from the experience. You might want to change something because you're not playing great. Exactly. And, and everything has consequences. My son went through that when he was in football, he got in with the wrong crowd and, and they convinced him to quit the team when he was, a, so he came to me and said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to quit the team. I'm not playing enough. For none of that. And I said, well, you do understand that if you quit now, you can't go back. Or if you do go back, there are going to be consequences. And he said, yeah, I get it. So next year he decided to go back and yes, there were consequences, yeah. but to his um, to his credit, he made it through the entire season. He didn't, he didn't throw up his finger and say, I quit. He, he, uh, he made it through. And that, yeah. and that was a life lesson that was more important than him starting or playing well. Right. And I, and I think that that's something you, we probably hear often is like, you know, sports really creates the environment for kids to build character, Right. The idea that they can make their own choices, they can learn these lessons, they're going to fail, right? They're going to work hard and sometimes things aren't going to go their way or sometimes they're going to quit, right? And they're going to go, I made a bad choice. I'm going to go back and then have to bite the bullet because I left for a year. Those are all things that we take with us because all of us, I talk to this, all my athletes about this, all my clients, you're going to retire at some point, right? Whether it's at the end of high school, at the end of college, maybe you're lucky enough to play pro. But by the time you're 30 years old, and for most of us 20s, that's it. Like it's over, right? You got to move on to the next phase of life. And that you need to have to learn how to deal with that before you get there, rather than getting to a place where now I'm done as an athlete. That's the only piece of my identity that I know. And now I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing things that probably aren't good for me because I don't know how to cope with not being an athlete because that's who I was. So that's something that comes up a lot for me in my work. And it comes up for a lot on my podcast. I talk to a lot of former athletes who talk about their experiences post retirement and really struggling, really struggling with what, who am I and what am I going to do? Your podcast name is the freshman foundation. Uh, I love that by the way, Thank you. and go to his podcast. It's, it really is uh, insightful because one of the things that, I think that we do a disservice to to our youth, especially the talented ones, 
they who have rarefied air that they grow up in little league and pony league and high school and everybody thinks that they're just wonderful and then at one point in time they no longer can be who they once were but they have no identity they don't know who they are they t- they can't fall back on i am i'm a hell of a writer or i i love talking to people and i'm a great salesman cuz they d- they didn't invest the time cuz you found that a lot in the people that call your show huh yeah definitely it's it's actually interesting i remember my very first episode which which came out in the beginning of 2021 was with a kid who i coached in high school and he went on to play college baseball he's playing college baseball now and we talked about it and he had, he was in his um, first semester of school. And actually one of the things I remember him saying very vividly is like finding something outside of baseball was really important to him, right? Find something that you like outside your sport because otherwise it'll drive you crazy because you're going to live, eat and breathe it. And if it doesn't go well, or that's all you have, you're going to really struggle. Right. And I think you're right. It's like, what's my purpose outside of sport? What do I want to do for a living? You know, who do I want to surround myself with? Do I have a hobby? Like those things are really important so that when you get to the next step and sports gone, you're like, Hey, now I'm going to be an entrepreneur that comes out a lot in my podcast. I have a lot of entrepreneurs who are ex athletes who say, Hey, like now I want to go build something and be like an athlete where you're like investing all this time, energy, even money in certain instances to build a business. And it's sort of like being an athlete because there's no guaranteed return, but you're like putting all your heart and soul into it. And that's a really common theme that I see in my, in my, with my guests. Well, I hope that, I hope that as many, as many of them as possible can be successful because keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that your average kid in high school, they don't even teach him how to balance a checkbook. And so he gets to be 18 years old and some guy, some organization offers him a hundred thousand dollars cash to sign on the dotted line. He's now has got this bank account with all this money in it that he has no idea how to manage it. And it disappears more times than not. Doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't, can't speak to that, but I think you're, you're generally you're onto something, right? It's even, I see it with my own children. The things that kids learn in school are things that I know they're never going to use. And when they, when they say they're never going to use it, they're right. Like I can't lie to them. Right. They don't teach them how to, you know, financial literacy really. Right. They don't, they don't teach them emotional coping skills. Right. They don't teach them goal setting. They don't teach them all these practical things that we, we need to learn how to do in our adult life. And we don't know, we don't use the historical facts, right? Like, Oh, the war of whatever, you know, in this country, in this date, like, we're never going to use that unless we're going to be a history professor or whatever. Right. So like, I think there's this element of like, Hey, like giving them more life skills is really important. And I think that's kind of where I fill a gap with kids is giving them life skills that are going to translate into later in life post sport. So I think when parents come to me, they realize it's not just helping them now and to compete and perform, but it's going to help them for the rest of their life when they go off to college or when they go into the workforce, that they're going to have these tools that they didn't have or didn't learn in school. Day before yesterday, I got a piece of uh, mail that said, you have been awarded this, 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 um, this great credit line with this coming and we're going to transfer everything that of all your accounts and we'll transfer it to this one. And, um, 
And then in the fine print, it said, which they don't tell kids about, the interest rate was 27.5%. You could, you could pay minimum on that for the rest of your life and never pay it off. Yep. And they don't tell kids in school how to manage a checkbook, how to deal with credit and stuff. So these kids get to college, and in a lot of cases, mom gives them a credit card, bad idea. And and then they 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 blow their money because they don't know how to use it. Well, yeah, or we go back to the conversation we were having before, which is like if they're earning money through name, image, likeness, and they're getting a check for five grand or 10 grand or 20 grand. And some of these kids, the, the more higher profile ones are making hundreds of thousands and millions. Like, what are they doing with the money? Right. What are they spending it on? Right. Are they getting themselves into trouble? Are they investing it? Are they saving it? Right. Like those things are even more valuable. And I think in truth, I think the colleges certainly are starting to uh, catch up to that. They know that they need to teach their kids like, Hey, if you're going to have this money, this is what you need to do with it. And really starting to build in life skills programming because it's a much different world than it was even five years ago where you just came in, got a scholarship, and that was it. And your only financial planning was, well, where am I to get money to eat my meal today because I don't have any, you know? How do you do, do you help? Because um, I, I know that the, statistically speaking, the, the odds of a kid going through college, getting drafted, making millions of dollars is very small. Yes. But there are guys that, that do that. How do you? Do you ever talk to have that conversation with somebody about the hangers on the the guys that are not the the friends that that are there that they take that that end up eating up their money and stuff like that? I, I haven't had to. Um, I haven't had to. You know, I have had a couple of college kids who you know are on the precipice of playing professional sports, um, but I, I've never found myself in that situation. But I think I kind of go back to the foundational stuff that I've talked a little bit about here, right? Like decision-making is something that I would consider in the realm of my work, right? Yeah. One, one of you, what do you value? That's part of it. I've talked about that. But just looking at the pros and cons, like, okay, like it's not that complicated, right? Like, okay, if I make this decision, what are the pros and what are the cons? Like I've done this with kids before. Make a T-chart. Tell me the pros and tell me the cons. Okay. Which one outnumbers the other? Like, okay, let's think about this logically so that like you can think about a decision rather than just making an emotional decision, right? Making a decision where like, well, I have to do this for somebody because they're putting pressure on me or I want them to like me versus like, no, I need to protect myself. I'm not against making the decision, but I need to understand what both sides of the equation are. So that is something that I would help kids with because I think decision-making is some, something that we just tend to learn through osmosis. We're not taught about it. We just we learn, you know, learn through doing and we fall on our face and get up and keep going until we figure it out, which for some of us, like myself, takes, you know, 40 years to figure out. Yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Well, you know, and Charles Barkley, the basketball player, tells a story about um, he was having a conversation with, uh, I think, it, and name escapes me, but I think it was Michael Jordan. And Jordan said, how many cars do you have? And Charles said, well, I got six said how many can you drive at the same time well one why do you have six because I, I i like cars i want six it's like do you realize you're just sitting there and they're not making it so so Bar so barkley sold four of them right because he, he realized that that was a really dumb idea and a, a lousy way to store your money it's a really good example, right? And it can apply for athletes of like, where are you not only spending your money, but where are you spending your time, right? 
am I putting my time, which is finite into buckets, doing things that aren't really that valuable or important. Like then I'm wasting valuable, a valuable commodity, right? Thinking about like, what are the one or two or three things that are most important? So when I spend my time, I know I'm getting something out of it versus like spreading myself really thin or doing something to make somebody else happy. Right. So like the same principles apply there. And I think it's just being more mindful about what's important to you and like what the consequences are and being more measured in like your decisions. And like, I think a lot of kids just aren't taught to think that way. And, you know, I, I, I like to contribute in that way. If, if I feel like a kid needs, you know, needs support in that, in that manner. I, and I, I really hope that you, you can con convince some kids, you know, I hear every now and again about this, uh, an altercation that may happen in a, like a strip club. And I'm going, well, you know, these are just kids. Well, it's like they're in their early twenties and they're famous and they're going to a strip club. Those things just don't work for you very well. If you're going to maintain your reputation and that kind of stuff, but that, that happens as well. So, well, I mean, listen, most professional leagues, NBA, NFL, I'm sure baseball does, you know, when kids are coming into the league, rookies are coming into the league, they, they're educating them on this stuff to what level I'm not exactly sure, but they're telling them, Hey, like, be careful about where you putting yourself, where you're going, who you're going with, what, what kind of money you're spending. Like they're giving them at least like the heads up, like you shouldn't do this. The truth of the matter is, listen, the, the, the brain doesn't fully form until 25 years old. Meaning if you're 22 and your decision-making function and your brain is still not all the way where it needs to be, like you're going to do dumb stuff. Right. And that's, that's, it, it's going to happen sometimes, but that's the lesson of, okay, now what are the consequences? What am I going to learn from it? Do I have a growth mindset? Like, you know, obviously when there are, you know, legal consequences or financial consequences, it's a pretty big deal and you're in the public eye, but can you look at a situation where maybe you made a mistake and view it as an opportunity to get better and grow and change your behavior? Or do you look at it as like, oh, like, you know, I'm a victim or whatever. Right. And that's sort of something, that's definitely something I talk to kids about is, you know, are you viewing these failures, this adversity as an opportunity to be more resilient, to learn something new? That's just a different perspective, right? And that takes work because our natural default setting is gloom and doom for a lot of us. Exactly. By the way, we've been talking with uh, Michael V. Huber, and by the and uh, your your podcast again is Freshman Foundation. Freshman Foundation, go do that. <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna I'm going to um, stand aside. I'd like you to tell our audience, especially those moms and dads out there that may have a budding superstar in their household, how tell them anything you would like them to know. Well, I think the most important thing I could tell you is, is that you have to do what's best for your child. Right. And I think being honest in your assessment of, of what that is, uh, is really important because sometimes we think we can help. Um, but we're not always capable of doing that. And somebody like me, I'll just sort of, you know, promote myself here is like, you know, and, and, and parents and athletes I've worked with will, will tell you this. Like, I think finding somebody to help you like me, a mental performance coach, a sports psychology professional, really the most important thing is, do they have my best interest at heart? Are they genuinely interested in helping and being a part of the team? And if that's the case, then you're probably going to find somebody really good to put into your corner 
to give your you yourself as a parent and the kids the resources that they need to survive what has become a much more pressurized and rigorous process. So, you know, what I urge parents to do is to reach out to me because I want to talk to them. Like you said, like I want to have a conversation with them. Uh, I want to understand where they're coming from, what's going on. And then I try to assess from my end, honestly, you know, whether or not I can help. And if I can help, can I point you in the right direction to get the help you need from somebody else, whether it's a clinical professional or somebody else in the field who specializes in some element of sports psychology that might be better than, than I am to do the job. Yeah. But start with you first. <laughs> you can, I'm happy to, I'm always happy to talk to people because you know, this is, I think I told you this before, you know, this is my second career. I left my first career about six years ago and like, I got into this field to help people. Like I'm doing it because I want to help people in this space. And so like my first instinct is always to be, Hey, give, 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 let's see if I can help. And if I can help and it makes sense, then we could talk about what, what, you know, what a coaching arrangement looks like. But there's a couple of steps before we even get to that point. It's just really trying to be an ear to listen to and give some advice and see if there's a fit. That's why you're on this program. That's right. Because you're willing, you're doing this for the good of other people. I like to think so. Yeah. Kids. Yeah. So thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? No, Kevin, you mentioned like three or four times my website, everything that you could find there. There's free stuff. There's my podcast. There's blog posts, all my socials, my contact. Check that out. There's a lot of free stuff and stuff that's really valuable that you wouldn't even need to reach out to me for to get something from a visit. You are a busy guy, and it's 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 great to have you here, and I, I really appreciate uh, you coming along. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's always great talking to you. Yes, indeed. If you'll wait right there, I will be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to one another because each other's all we got.